This morning we will continue our Advent series in the book of Luke, and we will be looking at verses 18 through 38 of chapter 1. These are the words of God. We're going to read verses 18 to 20 to start with. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring to you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now by the Spirit, open up these glorious words, these glorious events that you brought to pass 2,000 years ago and change the world forever. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Sunday we learned about how the angel appeared to the old childless priest Zacharias while he was serving in the temple, in the holy place. Now, the courtyard of the temple is where you would have the main altar where worshipers would come to present an offering to the Lord and the priests would handle the offering at that place. But into the temple proper, only the priests could go. The first part was known as the holy place. And in there, you had several pieces of furniture that pictured realities of what God has done for us, how he relates to us, how we worship him. So the first part was called the holy place, and there were three pieces of furniture in there. If you were walking into the holy place in this direction, over here to the left, you would have the golden lampstand. It's often uh, pictured or conceived of by Christians as a golden uh, a candelabra, a candlestick, but it wasn't. It was oil lamps, seven oil lamps. And so they are burning and they are shedding light. Over to this side, to the right, you would have the table of showbread. You had 12 loaves of bread there standing for God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the picture you get is that the oil of the Holy Spirit is burning brightly through the light of God's word and is shining upon God's people. And then going more toward uh, the holiest of the holies, right before the veil that separated that off, you would have the altar of incense. And that is, that's where Zacharias is ministering. He's at that altar of incense, and he is burning sweet incense up to the Lord and offering prayers because the incense stands for the prayers of God's people. That is a sweet aroma, a glorious aroma, to God. So that's where he is. Going further past that veil into the holiest of holies, that is where you would have the Ark of the Covenant. That is where you would have the golden, uh, and the Ark would have the Ten Commandments in there. It had a, a pot of manna. It had Aaron's rod that budded. These were historic events and God's dealing with his historical people. Over the top of the Ark of the Covenant was a a golden slab. It was known as the mercy seat. That is where the blood went on the Day of Atonement. The picture being uh, that that is where God meets with man. That's where sin stops and righteousness begins. That's where death stops. That's where life begins. And so that's what's being pictured. And that mercy seat where the blood went was also known as the footstool of our God. It is where the people of God are pictured worshiping at God's footstool. And then other places in the Old Testament, the footstool of God is called the earth. And then you begin to see the cosmic imagery that is being portrayed there in the temple. Because where did the blood of Christ go when he died? Onto the mercy seat. Onto the footstool of our God. Onto the earth where we worship the Lord God. So you see all of that being caught up in the imagery of the temple. So Zacharias, I mean, only the high priest one day a year could go into the holiest of holies. And and by instructions of God, they tied a rope to his ankle in case he failed to do anything according to the scriptures because they had to pull him out, uh, his body out, rather. Um, and so... 
Zacharias is in the place as far as any priest could go other than the high priest on the Day of Atonement. So this is a great honor for him, and so he gets in there, and then suddenly there is this angel who is speaking to him. So that helps you picture. All the people are outside. They're offering up prayers because he's inside offering up prayers, so they're worshiping and offering up prayers together. And so this angel appeared to Zacharias and told him that his prayer had been heard. We looked at that. That's going to be the central prayer of Israel for God to deliver his people by the coming of the Messiah. And that's caught up together with the prayer that Zacharias and Elizabeth must have offered up thousands and thousands of times over the decades. That would be for a son. And so the angel tells Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth is going to bear him a son who is going to be filled from the, with the Holy Spirit, even from the womb, who is going to go before the Lord, the Messiah, and the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers to make ready a people for the Lord. Now we pick up at this point this morning. As wonderful as these words were, old Zacharias had long since accepted his childless fate. And so God's words through the angel were simply too much for him. They seemed too good to be true. And so his instant reaction is to seek assurances, to seek a sign, to seek some form of an immediate miracle to assure him of the bigger promised miracle that would lie more than nine months into the future. Now, God, through the angel, accommodates Zacharias's weakness of faith, but he also rebukes him, while at the same time showing God's sense of humor. Verses 19 and 20. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and to bring these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Now, if you think about it, Zacharias, as I've already described, is in a place that nobody can go but him, because he's the designated priest on that day to go in there. Nobody can get in there, and now there's an angel speaking to him. I would call that a sign. That is a miracle. But that's not enough. Zacharias wants something more. And so we see here that although God wants from us implicit faith, in other words, implicit faith, trust in God and trust in his word, because it is the word of God, That's the faith that God wants from us. That's the faith that God wants from Zacharias. It's not the faith we see from Zacharias. But it is the faith that we will see with Jesus himself. So let's look at Jesus just so we have an idea of what this kind of faith looks like. It's the kind of faith we see with Jesus when he's being tempted by the devil in the desert. Matthew 4 verse 4. There Jesus tells the devil, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is the true food, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's also the faith that we see Solomon urging his teenage son to aspire to in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 7. He tells his son, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, flat out. Lean not on your own understanding. Then verse 7, he says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Now this is really the fundamental issue of life. It is the fundamental issue we see in the Garden of Eden. Because what happened in the Garden of Eden is that Adam and Eve, they leaned on their own understanding and they were wise in their own eyes. That was the problem. And so... We see with Jesus, he trusted in the Father with all his heart. He trusted in God's word 
implicitly. You know, we would think that God the Son, from all eternity, who has now become man, we would think, well, what need would he have for the Word of God? He is God. Why does he need the Scriptures? He would just have this intuitive knowledge and perfect knowledge, you know, by some kind of like a Vulcan mind meld with with the Father knowing everything intuitively. He would have no need for the Scriptures. But we see exactly the opposite with Jesus. He was preeminently a boy of the Scriptures, 12 years old. He already knows the Scriptures better than all the teachers down at the temple. He's preeminently a lad a young person of the Scriptures. He's preeminently a man of the Scriptures. In every critical instance of Jesus' life, we see him turning to the Scriptures and quoting them. Like here, when he's being tempted by the devil, he quotes the Scriptures. Satan quotes the Scriptures back and twists them, which would tend to make most of us want to give up and look for something else. Jesus just continues to quote the Scriptures and to apply them rightly. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, the words he says in prayer to the Father are quotes from Psalm 22. Hanging on the cross, he's quoting the Scriptures. After he's raised from the dead, he appears to two disciples who are confused and downcast, don't know what to think, because it seems that now Jesus, their hope, is, is dead. He appears to them. He prevents their eyes from recognizing them because he wants to preach the scriptures to them. And that's what he does. He is the resurrected Jesus. He doesn't want them focused on that right now. He wants them focused on what the scriptures said would happen so they can see the scriptures are fulfilled. Not one word falls to the ground. So that's the example we see with Jesus. And that's the kind of faith that God wants to see in every one of his sons and daughters, every one of us. Having said that, we can see from Jesus in the Gospels that there is such a thing as genuine faith that is not as strong as it should be. We can all identify with that. There is genuine faith that is weak. But it's genuine. We see Jesus in the Gospels accommodating that kind of faith. In other words, not, not so much just rewarding it in the self that, in the sense that just stay as you are, but strengthening it. Catering to it, but strengthening it. In Mark 9 verse 23, a father has come to the disciples who has a son who since very early age has been possessed by a demon who, uh, Uh, abuses this uh, son uh, and has for years and the disciples cannot cast it out and so he comes to Jesus and Jesus tells him if you can believe all things are possible and and the man falls to the to the ground and and he says Lord I believe help my unbelief he recognizes he does believe he has a genuine faith It's not as strong as what Jesus is calling for. And he asked the Lord to help him. We see other ways that our faith can fall short of what it should be. Sometimes it's in the the deep levels of obedience that God is calling us to. In Luke 17 verse 4, Jesus tells the disciples, If your brother sins against you seven times in a day and returns saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the disciples said to the Lord, increase our faith. That level of imitating the Father, that level of of godliness requires a really strong, implicit faith in the Lord. And the disciples are recognizing, we don't have that. Lord, give it to us. In John chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus basically says, in effect, that The ideal faith, the faith that God really wants to see in all of his children is one that does not need to receive an immediate miracle to show the person the assurance of his further promises. But he also says, look, if but if that's where your faith is, 
That's better to have that kind of weak faith than it is to have no faith or to have a phony faith. And we'll talk about phony faith in just a minute. But he says in John 10, verse 37, he says, If I do not do the works or the signs, the miracles of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, even though you don't believe me, even though you don't have implicit faith in my words, believe the works. Believe the signs. Believe the miracles. That you may know and believe that the Father's in me, then I in him. In other words, believe them in themselves if that's where you are, so that you come to implicitly trust in me and the Father. And then he picks up that same theme in chapter 14, verse 11. Believe me, said Jesus, that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe for the sake of the works themselves. A weak faith that seeks a sign is better than no faith or than phony faith that masquerades as real faith. What does phony faith look like? It's the kind of faith we see from the majority of the leadership of Israel in Jesus' day, the majority of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In Mark 8, verse 11, the Pharisees come out and begin to argue with him because, you know, ultimately they want to kill him. They want him gone. They see him as competition. They are envious. Even Pilate himself, when they brought uh, Jesus to be crucified, Pilate, the ancient pagan world, the modern pagan world, it runs on envy, resentment toward others who are perceived to have something you don't. That's what the pagan world runs on. And so Pilate, being a pagan politician, he knew envy when he saw it. And he knew that it was because of envy that the leaders were bringing Jesus to be crucified. And so the Pharisees, they seek a sign, but it's not because they have a weak but genuine faith. It's because they want to bring him down. They're testing him. They're trying to trip him up. And they seek a sign from heaven. But Jesus sighs deeply within his spirit because he knows why they're doing this. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? He's not talking about everybody in that generation. Obviously, his disciples and so forth, they wouldn't qualify. He's talking about the leadership of that generation. Why does this generation seek a sign? It's not because you have genuine faith that you want strengthened. It is because you have a faux faith, a phony faith, a fake faith. It's a game. It's a political game. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. In other words, Jesus would give signs for those who had a genuine faith, but it was weak. But he would not give a sign to those who had a phony faith. And so, as I said before, the angel appearing to Zacharias in the holy place, that's what's called a sign. Because nobody can get in there as Zacharias well knows. But Zacharias wants another one. And God grants Zacharias' request while at the same time he disciplines him. He basically says, you want a sign? I've got one just for you. You will be mute until the child is born. You're going to have over nine months of sustained miracle, 24-7, Miracle every second. How's that? Until the baby is born. Nine months for Zacharias to ponder and repent of his weakness of faith. Meanwhile, the people gathered outside for prayer, they know that something out of the ordinary is going on. This is not normal. He's been in the temple way too long. Verses 21 and 22. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. Now, what he's trying to do is pantomime, pantomime an account of his conversation with an angel. Now, imagine that in a game of charades. Pantomime an account of an encounter with an angel. 
when you cannot talk. So in this speechless condition, Zacharias finishes his term of service in the temple and returns home to Elizabeth, and God fulfills his promise, verses 23 and 24. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. By miracle of God, Elizabeth becomes pregnant, just as Gabriel had said. Now, this miracle, as we can well imagine, was extremely personal to Elizabeth. Not only is God giving her a son, but he's removed her reproach. Now, you see what Elizabeth is talking about there is that it's people being people. And still today, and certainly in that day, People ordinarily, just as a matter of course, would have reasoned or at least wondered if Zacharias and Elizabeth had done some kind of wrong or sin that caused God to withhold the blessing of children from her. That gives rise to this air of suspicion or this air of approach with which they have lived, particularly Elizabeth. They have lived with it for decades We see the same assumption even with the disciples of Jesus in John chapter 9. There is there a man who has been born blind. And the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice their assumption. They, They take it for granted. Obviously, someone sinned so that this man was born blind. Lord, was it him or was it his parents? But Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, they were sinners. What Jesus is saying is they did not do anything that incurred God's displeasure that caused him to strike this man with this affliction. He says, rather, it is that the works of God should be revealed in him. And then Jesus heals this man who was born blind, and he bears testimony to Jesus. That's in John chapter 9. You see the same kind of uh, uh, assumptions working in the book of Job with Job's so-called friends who basically, with Job having lost his family, lost his wealth, lost his health, is in misery, they are there saying in so many words to him, dude, you did something. (laughs) You, You sinned in some way that this would come upon you. Now, God appears later in the book and tells those friends to repent. And, and, and Job will pray for them because they have not spoken the truth about God. Does God sometimes discipline us with circumstances and so forth? Yes, he does. But that does not lead to an automatic assumption that any time a hardship or an affliction or a trial comes our way, that that means we're being punished for something. Look at the afflictions that came Jesus' way in the perfect will of the Father. The book of Hebrews tells us that all of those things were necessary for God the Son, now the Son of God. He's already perfect. He doesn't need any sin purged out of his life. He's already perfect, but he's not fully mature. He is not fully developed in the sense of becoming all that it means to be the Son of God. In other words, He needs to stand up to His full height. And that's what the Father is bringing about by the afflictions and the hardships and the persecutions that come Jesus' way. So a lot of things in our lives, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, are motivated by that same love of the Father. Paul talks about it in Romans 8. He talks about we follow Christ in hardships and afflictions that we may stand up to our full height the same way. That we as sons and daughters of God might grow up to all that it means to be a son or daughter of God. So here, Elizabeth cherishes what God has done for her. And so she hides the pregnancy for five months. You would think she would want it broadcast as soon as possible so her reproach is taken away. No, she wants to keep it private. 
as long as possible because she realizes what God has done for her and for them. And so Zachariah supports her in this. She hides the pregnancy as long as she can because she wants to cherish it just between them and God. And we can understand that. Verses 24 and 25. She hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach among people. With Elizabeth, just like it was with Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was barren for decades until she's too old to have children, that's a lot of sorrow. That's a lot of tears shed. That's tough. That's hard. But the thing is, we assume that because the spotlight has moved off of us and we feel like we're over in the corner of the stage in the dark where nothing matters, we're being neglected, God, for some reason, well, and then we can understand, why would God like me? Why would he like me? Why would he have grace on me? We can all reason that way. And we think we've been left and cast aside. That's certainly the way Elizabeth or Sarah would feel. But what is actually going on is God is saying, I need a really special woman. I need a really special man. A special couple. That's what's actually going on. When we feel like we're off in the dark in the corner of the stage where nobody can see us, That's when the spotlight is on us. That's what we need to recognize. And so the story jumps forward a month and a hundred miles north. That's about five days walk in, in those days. So that's almost a week's journey up in the village of Nazareth of Galilee where Gabriel appears to Mary, the young betrothed virgin. Verses 26 to 29. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Nazareth, uh, a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Now, Gabriel's proclamation to Mary that we see in verses 28 through 37 is known in the Church of Rome, Roman Catholic circles, as the Annunciation. Annunciation is just kind of a an older, fancier word for announcement. They call it the Annunciation. And particularly Gabriel's greeting in verse 28 from the Latin Vulgate. The Vulgate was the Latin translation of the, of the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts back in the 300s AD by Jerome, translating it all into Latin. And starting in about 400 AD, the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament became the Bible for the Western Church, meaning Italy and everything west of Italy was part of the Latin Church, which came to be presided over um, by the Church of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, which is what we know today as the Roman Catholic Church. And so all the way up to the early 1500s, the cusp of the Protestant Reformation, The Vulgate, the Latin version, simply was the Bible for the Western church. They weren't comparing it with the original Hebrew and Greek. And so in the Latin Vulgate, Gabriel's greeting to Mary in verse 28 is the root of most all of what you might call the Mariology, the theology of Mary, the Roman Catholic teaching that Mary is full of grace. She is a reservoir of grace. She's a well of grace. She's a source of grace to others. It's teaching that Mary was the result of immaculate conception. When you hear of the immaculate conception in Roman Catholic circles, it's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about Mary. 
And what it's saying is that she was born without original sin. In other words, no taint from Adam's sin. So she's born without any kind of impulse to sin or any kind of a sin nature. It's teaching that she remained a perpetual virgin because uh, in their circle, celibacy was the ideal. Now, you see in Scripture, that's not what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches is that Adam and Eve in the garden before sin ever came, that God joins Eve to Adam in marriage. She's called his wife before the fall. And God charges them, fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, take dominion. They cannot fulfill the ideal, God's ideal, for them in the human race Unless, number one, they are married, and number two, they have children. And this is, this is God's means of blessing. Also, the Roman Catholic teaching that Mary was assumed, that is, taken up, body and soul, into heaven. That's called the assumption. Okay? Again, when they talk about the assumption, they're not talking about Jesus. They're talking about Mary. And its allowance, they haven't officially declared this at the papal level, they're considering it, but they allow it as what is called a pious opinion. You, you're allowed to believe this and, and it's a pious thing to do to consider Mary a, what they say is a co-redemptrix. Now, that ending, that suffix there, tricks, T-R-I-I-X, that's just an old, kind of an antiquated way of indicating that you're referring to a woman as opposed to a man. So a, a man would be a redeemer, a, a woman would be a redemptrix. And you, you will see that in old legal documents and, and that sort of thing. And so they're saying that we don't, it's not just one redeemer, there is a redeemer and a redemptrix. That is Jesus in Mary. All of these teachings flow from the Latin Vulgate's translation of the greeting in verse 28. And here's the problem. The Vulgate says, Hail Mary, full of grace. This is where all the Hail Mary prayers come from. Hail Mary, full of grace. She's someone to be prayed to because she's a reservoir and a source and a well of grace. The problem is the original Greek says, Hail, O favored one. One who has received grace. And the angel confirms this in verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, favor and grace are the same thing. They translate the same Greek word. How do we typically define grace as evangelicals? Grace is unmerited favor. That's what grace is. And so you can see very clearly in the original Greek, is that the angel is not proclaiming that Mary is the source of grace. He's proclaiming that she has received grace from God. Now, this discrepancy was unnoticed until the early 1500s when a version of the Greek New Testament was printed for the first time in centuries. This return to the original languages probably more than anything else, humanly speaking, is what led Martin Luther and others seeking to reform the Church of Rome in accordance with the Scriptures. This is what led to Luther and others then being excommunicated, which is what led to the Protestant Reformation. But coming back to our text, we see that what the angel is saying to Mary is that her conception and birth of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's not something she has earned. This is not something she's producing from herself as a source of grace to the world. Rather, she is receiving grace. She is receiving God's unmerited favor. And as part of His unmerited favor, she is going to play a key role in the birth of the Christ who will bring grace to Israel and the world. Gabriel explains this in verses 31 to 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now here Gabriel is referencing God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is some number of years after God has taken David from tending the sheep and has chosen him as the anointed, as the king over Israel. This is after God has delivered David from all of his enemies and given him victory. This is after David has come to Jerusalem and has brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. David wants to build God a house, but God says that David's son will build him a house. 2 Samuel 7:12. When your days are fulfilled, talking to David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed, singular son, in other words, after you, who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Now, David's son Solomon fulfilled this in a preliminary typological way. Solomon was greater than David in the sense that his kingdom had greater scope. He had greater wealth. He had greater power. More homage was paid to him by all the kings and queens around. All of this is a picture pointing forward to the kingdom of Christ. But the thing with the Old Testament Christ types like Solomon is just like with David, there was some sort of obvious indicator that this person was not the actual Christ. He was not the actual promised one. He was rather a living picture of the promised one. With David, you have the incident with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. A clear picture that David is a picture of the one in his righteous walk, but he's not the one. With Solomon, it was the multiplication of wives. God specifically forbade this, not only to Israelites generally, but specifically to the kings. Um, There was a lot of pressure back then for political reasons, if for no other reason, to take multiple wives if you were a king, because that's how you made treaties and alliances back in that day, through marriage. But in any event, Solomon greatly multiplies wives into the hundreds, and then that ends up, of course, many of them being pagan. That's another violation of God's word. And then that ends up with pagan shrines multiplying in Israel and Solomon himself dabbling in paganism and idolatry. Gabriel is telling Mary that the son she will miraculously bear will be the promised greater son of David who will fulfill these promises and establish an everlasting kingdom. That was another problem with Solomon. He died. This is an everlasting kingdom that God's promising. So you have to have an everlasting son. And Gabriel tells Mary that she shall call his name Jesus, verse 31. Once again, as with John the Baptist, God himself is assigning the name for this child, which signifies that God has a special claim on this child, and he's going to serve God in a special lifelong way. Jesus is simply the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. So in Hebrew, Jesus was Joshua. That was his name. If you think about Joshua, who was Joshua? Joshua was the greater Moses. Moses could not enter the land. He died before going into the land. But then there is Joshua who takes the people into the land and leads them in conquest. Jesus is Joshua. And... Matthew's gospel, because Gabriel also goes to visit uh, Joseph, who is Mary's betrothed, he makes it clear to Joseph in a dream that because Joseph knows that Mary is pregnant, obviously there's another man involved here. Obviously, sadly, she's been unfaithful. He doesn't want to subject her to ridicule and ruin, but he's going to have to divorce her because Back then, you exchanged the oaths at the betrothal. 
but the marriage would not be consummated till some months later at the marriage feast. But the oaths have already been exchanged. So if there's infidelity after the betrothal, it's adultery. It's not fornication anymore. So he's going to have to divorce her. He wants to do so quietly. The angel appears to him in a dream and tells him the other side of what he's telling Mary, which is that which is in your betrothed Mary is of the Holy Spirit. And this one is the Christ. And he tells Matthew, he shall be called Jesus, he shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 121. What we see here is God through Gabriel, he's taught, he appears to Mary, he appears to Joseph, he tells them the same thing, but he emphasizes two sides of the same coin. With Mary, we see him emphasizing the kingship of the Christ, that he shall reign forever over his kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. With Joseph, he's emphasizing the priesthood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. You shall name him Jesus because he will forgive his people for their sins. He will save his people from their sins. So between the two words of Gabriel to Mary and to Joseph, what we see is God holding together, connecting together two aspects of Christ that we as modern evangelicals obviously uh, often, unfortunately, separate. And that is Christ's priesthood, his purchase of pardons for sin, and his kingship, his reign over the earth. The modern evangelical church, typically, of which we're part, typically sees Christ's priesthood and pardon for sins as having been already accomplished through Christ's first advent, thus making it a present reality here and now on this fallen earth. At the same time, the modern evangelical church does the opposite when it comes to Christ's kingship and reign over the world. Those we see as lying in the future with his second advent, his return. Or we see it as applying up in heaven, but not here on earth. In other words, when it comes to his priesthood and forgiveness for sins, that applies here, that applies now. But when it comes to his kingship and his reign over the earth, no, that does not apply here. That does not apply now. It is either up in heaven or it's off into the future. The Bible won't let us do that. Now, it's important to remember, thankfully, that our salvation does not depend on us having perfect theology, a perfect understanding, because We all fall short of a perfect understanding in the scriptures in some way. And so the fact that we may not perfectly understand these things doesn't mean that we're outside the faith. But it does mean that we want to be biblical in our faith as much as God will give us the ability. And these are two big things. Consider Psalm 110, which is one of the main Messianic Psalms pointing forward to Jesus Christ. It is one that is quoted virtually more than any other Old Testament text in the New Testament. When the apostles wanted to explain who Jesus was and what he had accomplished, they turned to Psalm 110 over and over again. In fact, it is one of Peter's main texts of his sermon on the day of Pentecost to explain what has happened. How does the psalm open? Verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's kingship. That's coronation. That's reign. Okay? Verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's priesthood. That's pardon for sins. You see how it connects those two things It identifies them at the same time. They're not things that occur in two different times, in two different realms, in two different places. They occur at the same time and in the same place. And and Peter, on the day of Pentecost, sums up his sermon by saying this, Acts 2.34, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Then verse 36, Therefore... 
Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 15. In the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandments, but according to the power of an everlasting life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we want to connect these two things because God connects them. So coming back to our text, we see Mary responding to Gabriel with a question. How can this be since I do not know a man? Verse 34. Now this is not a question that is born of weakness of faith like Zacharias's question. Here's a request for a sign. Mary is going to shortly be praised for her faith by the Holy Spirit, speaking through Elizabeth, blessed is she who believed. That's what Elizabeth is going to say. We'll see that next week. So Mary's not asking Gabriel for a sign here so she can know for sure if what he's saying is true. She's asking just for some understanding how this is going to work because she's been a, she's a virgin. She has not been joined to her husband. How is she going to become parent, uh, pregnant? And so Gabriel issues no rebuke to Mary, and he gives her an accurate explanation. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, Son of God is a title in Scripture. We see in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, that it is the title that was originally given to Adam. Adam is called the Son of God in Luke 3.38. So this title to Jesus now is an indicator that Jesus is a new Adam. He is the eternal Adam. He is the final Adam. It is an indicator that Jesus is, number one, born directly of God, just like the first Adam was. God made Adam directly. God is making Jesus directly. And number two, that Jesus, like the first Adam, is the first father. He is the primogenitor of a new human race. He is the covenant head of a new human race born of the Holy Spirit. In short, Jesus is going to make everything new. By the birth of this child, by his work, by his death, his resurrection, his ascension, nothing will ever be the same. And then Mary replies in verse 38, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Very quickly, in terms of application, one of the things we tend to overlook as we look at these remarkable events is the kind of people God chose to use. And that he still chooses to use. If you look at Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and then Joseph as well. What do they have in common? What they have in common first of all is they're just ordinary people. None of them are famous. None of them are rich. None of them are powerful. None of them are super smart or super talented nor do they appear to have been super popular with a magnetic personality. Zacharias is an obscure elderly priest. His wife is an obscure elderly woman. Mary is an obscure maid engaged to an obscure carpenter in a backwater town of Nazareth, way north of Judea. They were all decidedly ordinary except for one other thing that they had in common. And that was their faith in God and in his word. Even with Zacharias' weaknesses, we can see that. They believed and they trusted in the living God. Their faith wasn't perfect. We've already seen that with Zacharias. It wasn't always as strong as it should be or the best. Same way our faith tends to operate. Zacharias could get weary. Can we get weary? Yes, we can get weary. But he still believed. He didn't let go. He was like Jacob when he was wrestling with God in the Old Testament. God puts his hip out of joint. Jacob is no match for the circumstances, but he will not 
let go. And that's what we see in Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, and Joseph. And it will be testified of them, Zacharias and Elizabeth, that they were righteous in the eyes of God. And especially with Mary and Joseph, we see the implicit faith that God wants to see with his children. When Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to conceive the Son of God, is a miracle that's never happened before in the history of the world. She simply says, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She didn't know how these things were going to work out exactly, but she trusted God implicitly. And when we go to Matthew, we see the same thing with Joseph. God, in the middle of the night, gives him a dream that tells him, Mary is pregnant with my child, born of the Holy Spirit. He is the Christ. Take Mary as your wife. Name the child Jesus. And then it says, Joseph was aroused from sleep. As soon as the dream was over, he woke up. It's in the middle of the night. And what does he do? In the Greek, it's clear. Right away, the next morning, as soon as he can, he executes. There's no waiting. There's no thinking. There's no, well, maybe we need to get some other opinions here. He just does it. Same kind of implicit trust we see with Mary. And we just see this quick obedience with both of them. Not complicated to them. That's the faith that God wants to see with each one of us. That's the kind of obedience God wants to see with each one of us. That's the faith that God shaped their lives with. And we see God taking these ordinary people and just doing extraordinary things with them simply because they believed God and they did what he said. Let us show the same kind of faith and trust because the God who appeared to them is the same God we worship today. He has not changed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.